Welcome to everyone joining the webinar. We will um, wait a, set, a minute or two here to let people join in the room and then we will get started. I will go ahead and get us started with our housekeeping um, as folks are coming into the webinar. Um, my name is Rachel Dager. I'm the Executive Director of SNEB and glad you're joining us for um, our program today. Um, I will go ahead and drop our handout into the chat. Um, we have a lot of discussion today. Um, so, but we do have a kind of a one page um, handout for you uh, to follow along. Um, we, this session is being um, co-sponsored by the Higher Education Division and the Public Health Nutrition Division. Um, so thank you to both of those SNEB divisions for organizing this program. Um, I have turned on the transcript option if you need to follow along uh, with that in Zoom. Um, the chat and the Q&A features are also turned on. Um, we have some parts of the presentation. They have let me know that they are interactive. So they'll be asking for some feedback from the audience and you can type a question into the Q&A block at any time. Um, when I close the webinar today, there'll be a short survey and we appreciate your feedback on this session as well as ideas for future sessions. And then watch for a follow-up email from Zoom, um, probably by um, Wednesday or Thursday of this week with it includes the link to the recording um, and the CEU certificate that you're earning for your attendance. So I will turn things over to our moderator. Zubeda Kumar is assistant professor and a registered dietitian nutritionist at uh, San Francisco State University. She's also chair of the higher ed division. Thank you so much, Rachel, for the introduction and welcome to all the attendees that are joining this webinar. This webinar is titled Overcoming Imposterism and Promoting the Expertise of Nutrition Educators. Uh, and just to briefly uh, let you all know the agenda for today, I will be uh, introducing our speakers, um, Dr. Landry and Dr. Fuster, and uh, we will talk about um, imposter syndrome a little bit in the beginning, uh, and then we'll hear some words from uh, Dr. Fuster, and then eventually we'll get into a panel discussion 
where we have some questions we'll be asking uh, our panelists. And we would also be looking at the chat to see um, if questions are coming from the attendees. So uh, I will go ahead with the introductions of our speakers. Uh, first is Dr. Matthew Landry, who is a postdoctoral research scholar and a registered dietitian nutritionist in the Stanford Prevention Research Center in the School of Medicine at Stanford University. Uh, Matthew received his bachelor's degree in nutrition and food sciences from Louisiana State University and his doctoral degree in nutrition sciences uh, and dietetic internship completed from the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, among several research areas, Dr. Landry is interested in how barriers such as imposter syndrome can be overcome to foster diversity and inclusion within science, academia, and the dietetics profession. Matthew is also the chair-elect for the um, SNEB Public Health Nutrition Division. Uh, and welcome, uh, Dr. Landry. Uh, we will go ahead with the introduction for our second speaker as well, so we can have a smooth transition. So the second speaker is Dr. Melissa Fuster, uh, who is an associate professor at Tulane School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine. Dr. Fuster's community-based research experience has sought to address diet-related disparities, aiming to shift emphasis to upstream approaches that engage the structural factors that underlie access to healthy food and high-quality healthcare. Uh, and this was the subject of her first book. Uh, and please uh, help me pronounce it correctly. Caribenos uh, at the table, how migration, health, race intersect in New York City. Uh, and building on this work, Dr. Fuster is currently tackling food access issues via the Latin American Restaurants in Action Project, um, which is supported by the NIH Career Development Award. Uh, Dr. Fuster completed her PhD in food policy and applied nutrition at Tufts University Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy and a postdoc in food studies at New York University. Before joining the faculty at Tulane, she was an assistant professor at City University of New York Brooklyn College. Um, welcome, uh, Dr. Fuster, to you also. Let me go ahead and share slides and we will begin uh, the content with um, our first speaker. Uh, and just briefly uh, to let you all know what are some of the competencies that will be covered uh, through this webinar and what are the CDR performance indicators that are going to be uh, covered uh, through this webinar. And we went through the uh, uh, introductions for our speakers and um, nothing to disclose, uh, some disclosures from Matthew Landry, which you can see here, uh, and nothing to disclose from uh, Melissa Fuster. So I will go ahead and give um, the mic to Dr. Landry. Thanks, Dr. Kumar. Um, so let's dive right on in um, with what is imposter syndrome and what is imposterism? So an imposter is a person who pretends or claims to be able to do something or has specific abilities despite not having those skills, background, or expertise. An imposter syndrome goes by a number of names imposter phenomenon, imposter experience, imposter syndrome, but it's all summed up as this internal experience of persistently feeling like a phony, a fake, or a fraud, despite evidence suggesting complete otherwise. And it's often characterized by feelings of incompetence, inadequacy, or perceived fraudulence. And it's most often experienced by high-achieving individuals 
And imposter syndrome is a real persistent fear that others are going to find out that we're not competent or capable despite uh, objective successes in the past. And as imposters, we oftentimes have the inability to internalize success. And as a result, we oftentimes seek external validation as opposed to internal. And we attribute any success that comes our way to just being sheer luck or social contacts or just the thoughts and perceptions of others. Next slide. So I want you to think for just a moment um, and maybe even share in the chat if you're willing to do so. But up to this point in your career, what have, um, have you had any of those feelings of imposterism? Um, and what has it looked like for you? I know when I think of my personal journey through academia, um, one of the biggest things is that we oftentimes face rejection over and over again, whether it's a journal publication or a grant or you name it. We constantly have to go through this cycle of revise and resubmit. And many times, despite knowing that we are the nutrition experts, we get challenged on that. Um, and anytime we're thrown into a new circumstance, and that could be just a new project or a new paper, whatever it is, we can have that sense of um, cringe or dread um, that maybe this won't be our next big work. Maybe this will be a total flop and we won't have that success that comes from it. And so a big thing that I hope that we're able to accomplish in this webinar today is number one, talk about how these feelings are very common for many of us, but also how we can overcome them. Because when we have those feelings of imposterism, um, they can really stifle us um, and prevent us from being able to brag about our good, uh, our good outcomes, our good accomplishments, and our contributions to public health and the field in general. Next slide. So who struggles with imposterism? So psychologist Clance and I first described imposter phenomenon back in the late 1970s. And over the subsequent decades from that, imposterism has been able to be further established and quantified um, through a number of studies. Um, a recent systematic review of over 61 studies and 14,000 participants um, found that imposter syndrome um, was quite prevalent, um, although it did vary um, depending on which kind of screening tool was used. But the bigger thing here is that those feelings of fraudulence were common across gender, race, age, and a number of occupations. Um, though I will note that the study did find that it was more prevalent and disproportionately impacted the experiences of underrepresented or um, disproportionately impacted those disadvantaged groups. And uh, when it comes to professions, it was college students, academics, medical students, nurses, marketing managers, teachers, CEOs, celebrities, everyone um, could have um, fallen prey to imposter syndrome. Next slide. And just a little antidote here um, of what imposter syndrome looks like within the dietetics profession. So I actually conducted an online cross-sectional study um, with a colleague of over 1,000 students, dietetic interns, and currently practicing, as well as retired um, dietetic technicians and registered dietitians um, to see what was a, a kind of baseline prevalence um, within this kind of sample of nutrition and dietetics professionals. Uh, we used the Clance Imposter Phenomenon Scale, 
um, which is one of the most common ways of being able to measure those imposterism feelings. And it goes from zero to 100 with those higher scores reflecting greater or more severe imposter syndrome experiences. And what we found that within this sample that an average score was about 66 out of 100. So a little bit higher than um, midway. And it ranged as low as 22, but up to as high as 99. Next slide. But a different way to kind of view these numbers is to put it in this kind of perspective. We found that 62% of those that we surveyed um, within the nutrition and dietetics profession either experienced frequent or severe imposterism. Um, so here we can see it's quite common within the profession. Next slide. So one thing that I would be remiss without saying is that the root cause of higher rates within underrepresented groups is likely the result of inequities that exist within the structural and social environments around us. Um, we do have to acknowledge that the nutrition and dietetics profession is predominantly able-bodied, cisgendered, heterosexual, white, um, and improvements in diversity across the profession is an important first step um, as it provides diverse role models that are needed to help encourage students that are entering into the career pipeline and also individuals to remain within the profession. Um, now it's one thing to talk about improving oneself and combating feelings of imposterism within ourselves, but it honestly takes a lot more work and effort to take down the systems and aspects of the work environment around us that allow racism, misogyny, homophobia, you name it, to take place. And those negative and toxic work environments can truly stifle our ability to be able to flourish and promote ourselves. And so we have to actively work to support not only ourselves, but also our peers around us to create a better work environment for us all. Next slide. So why do we feel like frauds to even begin with? Um, well, number one, you're human and you were raised by humans. And early in life, the people around you your parents, your siblings, your teachers, they all played a, a really important role in forming your expectations for yourself, your beliefs, and your own self-perception. Um, you quickly learned as a child what was valued and what got you approval. You knew what got you that pat on the back. But most importantly, you learned what got you disapproval. You knew what your mom was going to um, frown upon when you did something. Um, but we can't blame our childhoods for everything. The society around us, again, where we work, we play, we live, also heavily feeds into self-doubt. Um, and our society is largely built on individualism with perfectionism as that unspoken rule. So for imposters, me and you, our personal worth is based on oftentimes accomplishments and successes and the avoidance of either shame or humiliation that accompany not meeting um, the expectations of ourselves. Next slide. The other way imposterism can really manifest is this topic of pluralistic ignorance. Um, and so this is where we really, we, we doubt ourselves privately, um, but, and we believe that we're alone in thinking that way because no one else voices their doubt. You can think about your current work environment where you're working, uh, whether that's in public health nutrition or in, in an academic setting. And I want you to just think about how you fail um, within that work environment with your colleagues and peers and think about how they perceive themselves. 
Now I want you to imagine how our relationships with others and our workplaces could really be, could differ if we were able to confide in one another, our insecurities and our self-doubts and be able to collectively work to empower one another. Next slide. Now, a big topic within the field of nutrition is that it's really diverse. We have things from food service, we have things all the way to public health nutrition, sports nutrition. The field is quite diverse. And, and a reason, um, and the, as nutrition experts, we want to be able to cover all of that territory. We don't want individuals without nutrition degrees that, that are just um, influencers online to really be giving out information. We want to be the credible nutrition educators. But one of the important things to note is that um, we don't have to be experts in everything. We can still be a nutrition expert without being um, an expert of everything nutrition. And that's an important distinction between those two. Now, there's two, two ways that we can think of this. A breadth of understanding, that's the field of nutrition in general, that we have an understanding of a little bit of sports nutrition, a little bit of food service management, a little bit of public health nutrition. Um, but when it really comes to it, in one of those kind of specific areas, we have a depth of knowledge and expertise, and that's where we can really shine. And understanding that we don't have to have that absolutely extensive note, every single detail off the tops of our heads, um, is an important thing because sometimes we pour so much energy and effort into trying to overcome that uh, a single area of perceived weakness that we fail to really focus on and celebrate our areas of true expertise. Now, a great example of this is that I am not a great singer. Um, just, um, and I could practice and practice all day long and I might improve. But at the end of the day, no one's ever going to pay for me um, to, hear, to hear me sing. Um, and that's something that I can just accept about that. But there are other talents and skills that I can improve and maybe people would actually want to pay to see me uh, perform or something like that. Um, silly kind of example there, but certainly kind of true. Next slide. And so again, a little moment for kind of self-reflection here. So why do we let the success or failure of our work truly define our happiness? And that's kind of a deep thing there. And let's give an example of that. So next slide. So I recently went putt-putt golfing with a few friends a couple of weeks back in Santa Cruz. And I'm not a golfer by any stretch, but I do love spending time doing fun activities with some of my friends. And I can be slightly competitive too, um, and the first couple holes, I was doing great. I had a couple hole in ones, um, but then the course really started to get more challenging. And we got to this one particular hole that required you to hit the ball up a ramp that was quite small in my opinion. Um, and underneath a spinning windmill into a very small tunnel hole. And this is where the course got me. I struggled to get the ball straight up that ramp with enough velocity um, while simultaneously avoiding the spinning windmill. So swing after swing after swing, I wasn't making any progress. Um, and this is where I had a decision that I had to make. I could laugh it off and joke around with my friends, or I could get frustrated that I was struggling with this hole and it was presenting a challenge for me. Um, I could throw a tantrum and launch my club three holes over and give up and accept failure, but I didn't. 
I didn't let the failure of this one activity define my happiness. I was willing to fail and look silly. I laughed it off and accepted that this was just for fun. And I eventually got there. I um, got through the challenge and got an impressive hole in 37 or something like that. Um, however, I continued on and I certainly did better on some of the other holes. Um, and again, this may seem like a silly example. And I realize that things in life sometimes are much more serious than a game of putt-putt golf with the friends. Um, important things sometimes are on the line, but we can certainly learn how to better accept them when they come our way. There's an important lesson behind all of this that sometimes our best success and happiness in life comes when we're willing to accept a little bit of failure along the way. Next slide. And sometimes failure does happen because success can truly be quite fickle. And we don't wanna let uh, failure um, question our capabilities, um, regardless of whether it's a failed experiment, um, if you're working in academia or a rejected publication, whether we like it or not, failure is part of that learning process, even though once we become that nutrition expert, we have the, um, the, um, all the credentials and educational background, we're still learning um, and going through that progress. Um, and there's not a single um, kind of scientist or practitioner out there that has not experienced failure. Um, here's a great example on the slide um, back in 2020. Um, Anthony Fauci, who many of us will regard as an expert when it comes to the coronavirus. We've seen them on our TVs. We've heard him give many, many reports, but he got a rejection letter from the New England Journal of Medicine that said, nope, this study's not quite good enough for here. Um, he ended up submitting it at another absolutely wonderful journal. But again, this was, I'm sure he didn't take this as a, um, complete reflection of his capabilities. He knew the science behind it. It just wasn't the right home for this particular kind of manus manuscript. So again, we don't wanna derive all our happiness or our self-worth from how well um, something goes on a particular day. Um, instead, we can use this as a learning opportunity, troubleshoot by reflecting by what went wrong and determine some potential solutions. Next slide. So comparison is oftentimes also the thief of joy. Um, there will always be someone out there who is smarter, more hardworking, and maybe more experienced um, than you. And while our competitive instinct might wanna kind of kick in, it might actually be more beneficial to learn from our competition instead. So for example, it could be a peer that um, has a wonderful public health program that is really succeeding within the community we can learn from that colleague, um, from their expertise, and soon be able to realize the aspects that we can put in our own programs that we are promoting. Um, so science, in my opinion, should be a cooperative environment where everyone feels supported, not a cutthroat environment where our colleagues are constantly competing against one another. And for ourselves, um, we can compare ourselves to ourselves and remember that the only person to really, that it's really fair to compare ourselves to is ourselves. And I, I like this mantra of being able to take time to ask ourselves, are we a better version of ourselves today than we were yesterday? And have we improved in ways that we wanted to from where we were a year ago? Um, and just remember that measuring our life in comparison to others around us really isn't a positive practice. 
Next slide. And one of the things I hear quite often in academia is I'm just, I'm just a graduate student. Oh, I just study food insecurity. We say it over and over. And if you really listen to yourselves, you probably even described yourself as that. Um, but what if we switch that around um, where we weren't just d diminishing all of our accomplishments and our expertise and we said, next slide, I am. I am um, an assistant professor of nutritional science. I am a researcher on food insecurity. Um, so we've all been told to practice those elevator speeches, those 15 second introductions of ourselves. Now imagine you're introducing yourself to a complete stranger. How would you describe yourself? Hopefully you wouldn't diminish again yourself by saying I'm just. And I want you to think about the words that you would want to describe yourself to a colleague. And do those words really capture who you are and all you've done and all that you're capable of doing? So next slide. And I realize that imposterism is a challenging thing to kind of overcome. And again, in academia, we often have those bad days where it seems like everything rolls in. A rejection from a paper, getting notified you didn't get an award. Um, and the list kind of goes on. Um, and on those days, one of my kind of favorite strategies is the good news folder. So I have a physical folder that sits on my desk that celebrates um, some of the best moments for my career so far. So my graduate school and postdoc acceptance letters, um, when my first scientific publication got accepted by a journal, and this was after several prior rejections at other journals. Um, I have emails saying that I got into my dietetic internship, um, and it also has screenshots of texts and emails um, from colleagues and advisors that have told me along the way, hey, you really knocked this out the park. You did a great job with this. And in those moments where I'm really second guessing myself and I get those creeping sensations of imposter syndrome um, come to settle in and I just need that extra kick of motivation, I take out this folder and flipping through those memories reminds me that I'm not a fraud, I am capable. And I've had these prior successes um, and accomplishments. Um, and it reminds me sometimes at the end of the day that in opportunities, I sometimes worked hard, I stumbled and ultimately I persevered. Next slide. And it doesn't even have to be academic focused or work-related. Um, a, a recent kind of addition to my own good news folder um, was that I completed my first full marathon back in October. Um, and again, you might not think, well, this isn't work-related or academically related, and you're right. Um, and that's the great thing about these kind of good news folders. They can highlight various sources of pride and accomplishment in your life. Um, and for me, this means a lot more than just kind of finishing a marathon. Um, I actually registered for a marathon a couple years ago. Um, and a week before the race was supposed to occur, I was nervous and I was feeling like I wasn't ready. Even though I had run dozens and dozens of half marathons before that, the marathon just seems like an insurmountable task for me. Um, so I got into my head thinking I was a complete fraud, um, thinking that I could run the full marathon. And flash forward to last year, and this time I, I devoted additional time for training. I sought help from others, from running coaches to get my pacing right, and from sports RDs to help get 
um, make sure that I was properly fueling myself. And ultimately, when I stepped to the um, starting line, I felt nervous, but I also felt confident in my own abilities. I put in the work, I put in the training, and you know what? I did it. It was miserable, 26 miles, but I did it. Um, so for me, this addition reflects overcoming the prior negative experiences and is now a source of pride and accomplishment that I can truly look um, back upon. And hopefully this can be an effective strategy for you as well. So with that, I'll turn things over to Melissa. Well, thank you. Thank you so much uh, for sharing all of that. Um, I'm sure we all learn so much when you when you look at imposter syndrome from this uh, academic perspective, really dissecting what it is, how it shows up. So, so I've, I've learned a lot. Thank you. Um, and I also want to thank you for for having me. Um, it is uh, amazing to to be here. And I will say, speaking about imposter syndrome, that if you had told me maybe two, three years ago that I would have been invited to a setting like this. I was like, really? Like I've been going through all of these uh, insecurities that, that we all face. Um, so I, I figure what I can contribute to that conversation before hearing from all of you, your questions and, and the discussion is um, to, to share with you a little bit about my, my background, my trajectory and how I've been seeing imposter syndrome from my perspective uh, as an academic, as a mentor, and also working with other uh, early career scholars, um, what I've seen in, in this journey. Um, just to reiterate a little bit from the introduction, I, I recently became an associate professor. Um, I just started this new, it's a new position at Tulane University. And it's, uh, of course, Tulane is an amazing university and I'm, I'm really happy to to be here, but of course it has been uh, quite quite a long <laughs> journey uh, to, to get here. Um, for example, before joining Tulane, I was an assistant professor at the City University of New York, with, which was an amazing experience, but then um, it was again uh, growing as a, as a professional. And so again, it's just to, to tell you that even though you see me today as a associate professor in a place like Tulane, it is still a, a long, long journey that that we all um, we all take to to get to where we are, and and also um, you know I wanted to just in sharing this that again um, reiterate and remind all of you that it is a journey and we are all even people that that you see as successful we all we all have bouts of of imposter syndrome, even again, your professors, other people that you see, are, oh, this person is doing so well. We all have days, definitely, or like, what, what are we doing? Why didn't this fail? Um, and in my case specifically, uh, as I was preparing to talk with you today, I was thinking in the specific ways that, that I have experienced it and, and why. And in my case, I feel it has shown up in two, two main ways throughout my trajectory. I am a Latina, I'm a Puerto Rican woman, a scholar in a field that, as we know, is not as uh, diverse as it should be. So um, it has been, of course, uh, uh, something that have brought up these feelings. Like, for example, I have an accent. 
um, not only my accent, and because I grew up in Puerto Rico, Spanish is my first language, but also I, I also know that there are cultural cues that sometimes even today, even after living in the mainland US for, well, 20 years, I still don't get. So that, that makes you feel, of course, uh, insecure. And that, if I think back, that lack of confidence was, of course, showing up when I was starting as, as a teacher um, and also in service positions where I was uh, serving in a committee and maybe I wasn't as confident to, to provide my perspective or felt like, oh, I'm, like Matthew just said, I'm just a junior faculty, I'm just this. Uh, so, you know, it, it's been again a, a work in progress. And at the same time, now that I'm uh, again further on in my career, I still deal with that because I'm also very not, I mean, I know that there are biases that exist. I know that research shows that when students look at me, they might evaluate me differently than from a white professor or somebody that doesn't have an accent. So these are things that you still have to contend because some of those issues are quite real, but you just have you have to find ways of, of tackling them um, and, and dealing with them as they come and how you present your narrative as a, as a teacher, as a researcher, as an academic or any of the other positions that, that you'll be taking on. And also I feel another, another way that my own um, cultural background came to play is that my culture, uh, Latin culture, we, we're taught to be humble. So it's this idea that you, you're not bragging about yourself. Um, it's nothing as a good thing. So I, this is something I still actually struggle with, uh, even though as, uh, as, as I was mentioned before in my introduction, I just published a book back in October. And it's, I'm still feeling like when I mention it, even though it's something that I should celebrate and tell people about, I, there's still something in me like, don't, don't let people know or, or don't brag about it. So it's just to say that you're still working with it. Um, another area that I think my imposter syndrome has flourished or become apparent is that my work is very interdisciplinary. Uh, I think coming, coming into spaces like this, uh, I, for example, I'm not, I didn't do a, a dietetics degree. I'm not a dietitian. My work, even from the very, very beginning has been in sociology, anthropology. My PhD was in food policy and applied nutrition. Then I went on and did a postdoc in food study. So it's, it's a lot. And at times I, I felt that I don't fit here. Like when I was in my previous position, for example, it was a highly clinical program where a lot of my students, their, their academic, their professional goal was to be a clinical dietitian. So for me, that it was, it was very uncomfortable to be in a place um, at times where I didn't know, okay, if, if you wanna be in clinical dietetics, how is it that I'm contributing? But then as I continue on, I did realize that there was something that I can contribute and I hope I did for, for my students. Um, and it's still, even with research sometimes, until recently, it shows up where you feel like, I have this idea, but it's too out there, or people are not doing what I'm doing. Or when I submit to journals, I know that uh, it is different from what other people are, are submitting, but, but you, keep, you keep moving forward. And 
and related to to how you you get through it or the way that I've gone through it. And it's not to say that that you you become cured because again, I feel like it comes and goes. You have to realize that it's there and why it happens and you move forward. But one way um, that I can suggest from my own experience is being comfortable being uncomfortable and realizing, for example, when I look in the past 10 years or so, places in my career that we all have where you you apply to something, you didn't get it, uh, journal rejections, that's every day for us, unfortunately. And, and, and I realized that thanks to those failures, is I am where I am thanks to that because it was maybe the kick that I needed to, to, to move forward or to just keep, keep fighting and, and keep going. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that I, I did early on that I, again, very uncomfortable, but you still do it, was this idea of just, just doing things, just putting the hat uh, in the table. Like we have this, this saying in colloquial Spanish, tirate de pecho, like just, just go for it. And thanks to that, I, I can say that I've been able to get experiences that I wouldn't have gotten otherwise. One of my favorite stories about that is um, I did my doctoral dissertation in Central America and thanks to my advisor, I was able to go to El Salvador to present work that I did with her uh, developing a diet quality indicator for Salvadorian communities. And after that, I was there was a meeting um, that same organization that brought me over. They were also planning to do this master's program for, for, for the region. So a combination of universities to train people to then serve as community health workers locally. And I remember I was just sitting in a corner um, in a conference room as they were planning the curriculum. And somebody said like, oh, we need somebody to, to teach this course on education and food culture. I was a PhD student and I, it was a joke. I said, oh, I can do that. And then it turned out a month after they said like, oh, there you go, it's your course. And of course I felt like I cannot do this. Why are they asking me? I'm not, I'm not from Central America. I don't know a lot of things, but I just went through it and, and did it. And thanks to that, I got amazing experiences teaching amazing students that are now, uh, are now doing excellent work in these communities in Nicaragua, Guatemala, Panama, and many other opportunities that if I had stayed and not put myself out there, I, I wouldn't have gotten. And I think also um, other things that, that have reinforced, that have provided me uh, confidence has been just the little, the, the wins that we get through, throughout. I, for example, um, for my, my, I have a NIH Career Development Award. And if I'm being honest, it all started with what I thought was a, was a crazy idea, where I said, I wanna get training in these very new <laughs> approaches, uh, systems thinking, design thinking, implementation science. A lot of people say that that's too much. Reviewers won't know, but I, I just kept working on it and developing it. And I'm, I was, amazingly surprised that I got it on my first application. 
So thanks to those to those whims, you have to to think back and say like, okay, it's not as crazy as I thought. Or what uh, in one point being interdisciplinary, I saw as a as a hindrance or as a barrier in my discipline. I am recently getting getting more comfortable um, with this more complex work and seeing that thanks to that you can push innovation and move the work in the field. But again, by no means, um, it, again, this is not something that I feel you, you get cured, that suddenly you're, you're free of imposter syndrome is still here. The doubt is sometimes still present, um, but again, it's important to think that, to remember in, this, in those times that you are not alone, and that is something that happens to all of us. And I also wanted to, to share more beyond, of course, my, my personal experience, um, just to tell you a little bit more of where I've seen this um, in my students or early career faculty that, that I've been interacting with. And some of the ways I, I have seen, um, for example, gender differences, again, going back to, to ideas of being humble, like for example, how we as, as women tend not to be as confident sometimes uh, compared to men. And this results, for example, in not applying to awards, not being not applying to positions. And some of these, for example, I started realizing as, as I became part of search committees or committees that were evaluating others that you realize, for example, that I would have a stack of applications and I would see applications from, from men that they, they just barely met the, the qualifications, but they still put their hat in the race. Um, the second, you have to think what's the worst that can happen, that you get rejected. So what, that's part of life and you, you keep going. And it's something that again, um, as women and also uh, as, as people, uh, immigrants, uh, people that are born outside of the US, you, you have to be mindful that, that again, <laughs> that, that you feel, the lack of confidence, but that you need to move forward. And the other piece that I've seen um, is, again, similar experience where you have people that are students or even a senior faculty, I've seen that, that because, for example, you, you speak English with an accent, something that I, I it's a pet peeve of mine when people say, please excuse my English. And it's like, I, I always tell people like, no, don't make a, don't apologize for knowing another language. This is part of who you are. So it's like, this is, again, this idea of things that we see are weaknesses or, or things that make us a, what we think is a fraud. We can think of ways of turning them into strengths of things that make you unique. Um, so it's important, again, um, don't shut yourself down. Some final takeaways. Again, go after opportunities because again, let other people judge you, don't prejudge yourself. Let others tell you no, but just at least give it a try. Um, and I think it's also important to talk to others about what you're insecure about. Because um, again, for example, it also helped me speak with mentors or peers about certain things I'm not that sure of because sometimes it can be that what you think was a weakness is actually a strength. Or it could be that, yes, you have a certain weakness, which we all have, and then you find ways of, 
of finding trainings or ways to improve on that weakness. So again, you continue developing and moving forward. And another thing, just um, a last piece is also we have to, and we're gonna talk more about this in the, in the discussion, but finding ways to feel comfortable with self-promotion. And I say this uh, as somebody that still feels uncomfortable with self-promotion. Um, and this relates, for example, in uh, social media. I know nowadays, even though there is so much we can say about the bad things about social media, but it is the way that we, the world that we lived in. So you, you can still use it as a way to promote your wins in certain ways. Um, and again, don't spend all of your time on social media, but use it as a way to promote your work, your wins. Um, and, and something that have made me more comfortable in doing this is that I, I don't see it as a benefit just for me of, of people like, hey, how, how great I am. Again, I, I don't, I feel very uncomfortable with that. But I also see, you can also think of the benefit for others in yourself putting, uncomfortable putting yourself out there in that there might be people, um, like in my case, uh, young Puerto Rican scholars that have not even thought about being in academia, that just by seeing me in academia, hopefully helps them. Because again, I remember when I was uh, in undergrad, I couldn't even have thought of myself as a professor and, and here I am. <laughs> Um, and then other things is that remember that we do research for the benefit of, of the community. So it's very important to disseminate that work. So that is another way that for me has made me more comfortable to, to share an article or, or share the presentation that I did because I figure we get money, we get paid to, to do this from grants or we ask community members to spend their time talking with us. So we need to put their voices out there. Um, so again, it's just important to think it's just not just about yourself, but about what it means for, for you to promote, promote yourself. Um, and I'll, I'll leave it there for, to hear your questions, but just to say that things get better as you grow professionally and we all go through this. So keep, keep that in mind. It will, it will pass. It will get better. Thank you so much, Dr. Landry, first of all, for the content on imposter syndrome and the idea about the good news folder. Uh, and thank you, Dr. Melissa um, Fuster, for um, sharing your story and giving us some, some concrete examples. Um, so for all the attendees here right now, uh, we would encourage you to put uh, your questions in the Q&A box. Uh, and we are seeing some, some uh, chat going on. Feel free to comment in the chat as well. But if you have a specific question uh, for the speaker, please put it in the Q&A box so we can um, moderate from that. Uh, but uh, we did solicit some questions from the higher education division members. And I will go ahead with the first question. Um, so you both give some examples, but if you want to elaborate a little bit more on where does imposter syndrome show up in higher education? Uh, and you can uh, speak from a research perspective or teaching service uh, in what ways uh, it shows up. Yeah, um, I can go ahead and kick that one off. Um, I think one of the biggest ones is that oftentimes we don't um, take advantage of opportunities that sometimes come our way um, so Dr. Foster mentioned an opportunity that kind of came her way. She spoke up, 
but as so many of the times we don't do that because we don't think we're the most qualified person in the room and we miss out on those good opportunities. Other places, again, that I oftentimes think that it occurs is in any types of meetings or kind of committee hearings where sometimes you hold back your thoughts and contributions to the group. Um, unfortunately, a lot of times that comes from women or um, BIPOC individuals that their voices don't get to be heard by the larger group. And that's unfortunate because those are valuable contributions that do deserve to be heard um, and as part of the discussion. Um, I think those are two of the, the biggest kind of ways um, that kind of come up that I see oftentimes in academia. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with everything that, that you say. And again, it's just that, that loss of our voices that I feel it's something that we need to, to be mindful of and, and who, who loses from, from our not feeling secure enough from, from standing up and, and saying what we think or, or contributions to, to discussions. Thank you for that. Uh, there are some questions that came in the Q&A, so I will go ahead with the first one, uh, which is, do you have any advice for helping students and colleagues overcome imposter syndrome? And an example that they have given is, for example, women are often um, not addressed formally in professional settings, so they always make sure to refer to their female identifying colleagues as doctor, even in informal settings. But do you both have any other tips or any other advice for um, uh, students or uh, other colleagues to overcome imposter syndrome? Sure. Um, so I, I love that suggestion of um, making sure to always introduce individuals by their credentials and things like that. Um, I, I also love Dr. Fuster's recommendation for self-promotion, but I would also say as a mentor or someone that's teaching students and working closely with them, or even if you're if you're working in um, a, a place of leadership where you have colleagues underneath you, um, one of the biggest things is to be a hype person for them, um, to brag about their accomplishments. Um, unfortunately, one of the big things about imposter syndrome is that we crave those accomplishments to feel validated about what we've done, but we don't like to go and seek them out. Um, so we're very bad about self-promotion and getting what we're craving. Um, so as a mentor or an as advisor, whatever it may be, or manager, um, making sure to highlight the accomplishments of those that you work with um, and put them on kind of a pedestal so that they get that acknowledgement and that, um, that, that feeling of um, that they've done a great job because they have. Um, and or even push them to apply for awards that they don't think that they are deserving of. Um, I, I think that's one of the best ways that you can help students um, feel confident about themselves. Definitely. Um, I definitely try to push my students to apply. I'm just apply for everything, just, just do it. And I think also one thing that I, I personally do is just share my failures and let them know again, when we get a rejection, you know, you forget that for a student, it might be the first time that they get rejected. So just sharing like, yeah, they have, this happens all the time. So normalizing those instances of, of failure and what you can do to move forward. Thank you for um, answering that. There is another question that came in the chat, which I think applies more towards a community nutrition setting. So 
they're asking that I work with this NAP at, at Nutrition Education that serves individuals uh, of low-income backgrounds. How do I support my paraprofessional staff who are peer educators in the community when they feel that they have imposter syndrome? Uh, and they're mentioning that because oftentimes these peer educators, they don't have a formal degree or education, only lived experiences. So they feel they don't fit in with the university system. So how can we support them uh, to overcome imposter syndrome? Yeah, um, th that's a great one as well. And again, that one, you're lacking those kind of accomplishments that you can really readily brag about or you don't have those work credentials or um, education credentials that you can kind of fall back on, but they do have that lived experience. And that in itself is very important um, when it comes to that breadth of knowledge and depth of knowledge. It's also about breadth of experience and depth of experience. And those people who have that lived experience have that depth. They went through those trenches um, and that in itself makes them a really effective peer educator. So in, in that case, if you're, you're managing and trying to motivate those individuals to overcome those feelings, I, I think you really have to help them acknowledge that as a really strong strength of theirs um, that contributes to them being a wonderful health educator and really help them set that perspective um, that they are super competent in the, that way. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. Um, and I do some of my work has been just to bring the voices of, of the community and, and show how they can be experts in many things related to nutrition and, and healthy eating. So definitely highlighting that and also noting that unfortunately, some of us in academia, uh, there is a time that we lose that, that connection with the community. So we, we become less experts when it comes to applying or, or taking our work to, to action. So also as academics, we have to be humble about, about that. Thank you for um, highlighting that. Uh, another question that came is, what is one advice you would give for young researchers who have just started their career and want to make it out there, but are feeling imposter syndrome, which is hindering their confidence to move forward? Um, one of the big things is to say that we all Feel those things um, and it's regardless if you're new to the field or you've been in the field for forever um, a great example is I could even say that if I'm all of what I know is academia right now and if I were to switch to a job at the USDA that would be a complete whole new territory for me and despite all my accomplishments my RD credential my PhD whatever it is um, I would feel a little nervous heading into that completely new environment and that's an okay feeling to have. Um, and, and one of the biggest things is to, to know that you're slowly gonna gain that competence and that ability to feel comfortable in that space. Um, I would encourage you to seek out a mentor that's in that space that again, can be that hype person for you and give you that um, kind of perspective that you're growing from this um, and that you're, you're gaining this competence in a new kind of environment. And that's a great kind of, I think piece of advice for those just kind of starting out in the field as well. Yeah, remember that you're starting, that this is a part of starting, of being a mentee uh, learning. So you, you have to know that you will not know everything. I still feel I don't know a lot of things. So just, just accept that, yeah, we're, we're all learning at different stages. So it's okay. <laughs> 
Thank you. Uh, I think we'll probably have time for one more question, uh, and that is to both of you. And uh, you can talk about your experiences with this. So what are some best practices of promoting uh, ourselves on social media? And what are some platforms that both of you utilize uh, and any tips on how to promote ourselves there? Yep. Um, I, I think Melissa or Dr. Fester did a great job of saying that sometimes she feels a little hesitant to promote herself. Um, but another way to think about that is not promoting yourself, but what you've done and your what 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 are your kind of research accomplishments or something like that. What what is the outcomes that you've achieved? Um, so that's one way that I've kind of um, gotten around um, feeling that that sense of uneasiness about being able to brag about what you've done. It's not brag about myself or what I've done um, or what I'm contributing to the scientific literature. Um, and the other thing I think that's important in that kind of area is finding a way to make it approachable to everyone. And that includes folks outside of academia and breaking it down into those simple kind of key messages about what it is that you've done and why you are that kind of person of expertise in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, again, uh, just what I said before, just remember, try to think of the why you do it beyond just, I'm so wonderful. Yep. Think about your audience, why, why the impact of your work? I mean, we all do the work because we think it's important. So because of that, you need to promote it and make it known because people, regular people won't, won't read out the, the journals. We have to, to say, hey, this is happening. This research is out there. So thinking about that and something too is just, I also find um, promoting others, using your, your platform to lift others that indirectly maybe makes you seem as an expert because you're, you're talking about, it, it gets you into the conversation without being about you, but saying like, hey, this amazing work by this color. And then you're also getting into that conversation without saying, oh, look at my amazing research, just through lifting up others in social media. Thank you. And there's also a, a great comment by uh, Dr. Singleton about Twitter. So if uh, folks are uh, comfortable using Twitter and you may want to utilize that platform uh, as well. So uh, we won't have another, we won't have a lot of time now for more questions, but I do want to thank uh, our wonderful speakers, Dr. Melissa Fuster and Dr. Matthew Landry for the content today. Uh, and we really appreciate um, uh, all that advice that you've shared with us. Uh, lastly, I'll just quickly share a couple of slides here. Um, just to talk about, um, you know, you heard about imposter syndrome, and we uh, want you to overcome that and please apply for SNEB awards for the upcoming year uh, for 2022-2023. Uh, and also there is a position open for JNEB um, editor if you are, are interested in that. Uh, and lastly, just to uh, let you all know, this, this session was co-sponsored by the Higher Education Division and the Public Health Nutrition Division, and we will be meeting at SNEB. Uh, this year. So just kind of giving you some times what division meetings are and contact person. If you want to uh, get some more information about uh, these divisions, please reach out to me um, or Dr. Chelsea Singleton uh, for public health division and to me for higher education division. Thank you, everyone.
Yes, thank you very much to our panelists today. Um, and just a reminder, um, Dr. Kumar did mention the annual conference. We have uh, registration options in person in Atlanta or virtually. Uh, so please take a look at the conference schedule and uh, participate in, in whatever way is possible for you. Uh, and then just a reminder there, we've added to at least two webinars into the uh, SNEB calendar for June. Uh, so check out the website to see um, some upcoming webinar education. Uh, and then we will send a follow-up email um, probably Wednesday or Thursday of this week with a link to the recording from today and your CEU certificate. And there's a short survey when I close this out and we appreciate your feedback. So hope to see you um, in, in Atlanta or back online for another webinar soon.